naturally occurring psychoactive compound, psilocybin, is found in over 200 species of mushrooms. Despite their millennia of use by humans for mental and spiritual well-being, they have been classified falsely among the most dangerous and illegal of substances. Locked away from those who need them most. The Psilocybin Chronicles documents the individuals who courageously consume, collect, or cultivate these mushrooms to improve the quality of their lives. Won't you join us as we welcome the return of psilocybin? Welcome to the Psilocybin Chronicles. I am your host, Eric Osborne. This podcast is intended for education and harm reduction purposes only. The Psilocybin Chronicles, nor Michael Meditations, nor myself condones any illegal activity. My guest on this episode is an anesthesiologist of more than 20 years. He has struggled with addiction and depression also for decades. He has requested complete anonymity, therefore no names will be used. His life story, the ways in which he managed his psilocybin experience, and the man himself are admirable. Won't you join me in welcoming yet another wonderful human being to the Psilocybin Chronicles? So, welcome to the Psilocybin Chronicles. Good to be here. (laughs) Who would it be if you were to eat mushrooms with anyone from time and history, and why? After thinking about it a bit, I would have to say Stefan Groff. Prior to uh, coming to view psilocybin as a therapeutic option for me, I'm the type of guy who does a lot of reading. And as some people know, he was the pioneering Czechoslovakian psychiatrist who did a lot of work on uh, entheogenic compounds in general, you know, back in the 60s um, in the setting of uh, mental, mental illnesses in particular, which is you know, where where I came to this. Um, I've read some of his literature, and uh, I find him a fascinating individual, and I think I'd have to pick him. What compounds was he mainly working with? From what I remember, it was mostly LSD, but um, psilocybin has some advantages over LSD in this day and age, primarily because it doesn't have the bad rap that LSD does. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have heard of LSD, and it has con- you know connotations of crazy hippies in the 60s. Psilocybin is less well understood. Uh, they are similar, though there are differences between the two medicines. And um, back then, much of the pioneering work was done with Albert Hoffman's uh, discovery of LSD. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, it's a fascinating history. And that's and that. Is that how you initially came to psilocybin is through research or had you encountered psilocybin in kind of counterculture when you were younger first? No, I didn't at all. Um, when I was young, I used LSD in a small dose twice and actually had an excellent experience um, without going into detail. It resolved a couple of um, recurrent fears and nightmares that I had. Uh, fast forwarding over the years, long story short, I um, I have struggled with a mood disorder, anxiety, and uh, episodes of um, addiction, primarily to alcohol, but also including some other substances, and have been under you know, professional mental health care for a long time. Uh, I have a rather conventional psychiatrist, and I, you know, we were just, just discussing options about a year and a half ago when I was having a little bit of difficulty, and all of a sudden he goes, well, maybe at some point psilocybin. Well... 
isn't that the stuff in, uh, quotes, magic mushrooms? And at that point, I uh, started doing a lot of research. I'm a guy who likes to have knowledge. I've read the medical literature. I've read people's experiences. Uh, I've read preliminary studies. And, and I've seen that based on current work and also work done with similar compounds prior to uh, the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, there was a lot of promising, uh, promising work being done in the setting of uh, mental health, particularly with addictions. In Saskatchewan, Canada, they were working on um, alcohol. Uh, there was a study on psilocybin and uh, tobacco. And uh, most recently, some encouraging things on, on mood disorders. And that's, that's something I've struggled with for a while. To fast forward from there, at that point, it was a kind of hypothetical discussion. But earlier this year, I had a um, bit of recurrence of, uh, of the depression. Medicines I had been on uh, that were working for a period of time ceased to do so. And I started to investigate it, you know, more uh, in more detail as a personal option. Mm-hmm. And uh, this mm-hmm. is the first time I've ever been exposed to it, and I'm no spring chicken. You were uh, working with ketamine before you came here, correct? Yeah. Uh, ketamine, in, in some of the literature now, has been called a, a transformational catalyst. Uh, I'm familiar with ketamine professionally. I get to use it uh, sometimes in my profession, and it's uh, approved by the FDA as an anesthetic. Um, as some of you may be aware, it's also being used uh, in the setting of mood disorders, particularly uh, suicidality and depression. Uh, and I had had an excellent response to that, which enabled me to get off of some medications that I needed to get off of, uh, particularly SSRIs, in order to have a reasonable, uh, reasonable experience uh, with psilocybin. Um, I had changed a few medications around and things didn't seem to be working. And I determined that, you know, maybe this is something that might benefit me. And I just explored it some more. So you had done so much research around psilocybin and must have had certain expectations or just just had made some assumptions, surely. And then you came to psilocybin. And how does the reality of the experience compare to your perceived reality all i can say is i have been amazed um i've worked all my life in a medical model you know in a medical model your blood pressure is such and such we give you this medicine and it lowers it to an appropriate point it's easy to measure and medically current researchers are trying to measure outcomes in that way remissions from depression um Mm existential grief in cancer patients, just to mention a couple of things that have been worked on recently. But my experience with this medicine, and I consider it a medicine, for me myself, this is not a recreational drug. It's far too potent for that. My experience is that it enabled me to work through some very difficult, emotional, traumatic things from uh, from my life dating back to early childhood and in no way would i describe certainly the initial exposure to the medicine as pleasant it was anything but however it was extremely therapeutic and enabled a subsequent dose to to produce some really cathartic breakthroughs i have a strong feeling And only time will tell if this is true, that I have no reason to be depressed or anxious, and I have no reason to ever take a a substance that is addictive. Now, again, I speak for myself. You know, if you're the type of person who can drink a beer or smoke some weed, 
and uh, it doesn't cause you to to do things repetitively and compulsively, by all means, have at it. Mm. I think that's perfectly fine. For me, anything that tickles the dopamine D2 receptor, that's the common pathway for, for addiction, I need to stay away from because even though I started with alcohol, uh, using any other substance that works addictively in a similar manner has led me to places I don't want to be very quickly. I had uh, extensive periods, sober and clean, half decades and decades, and subsequently relapsed. That was one of the other reasons I decided to look into this in more detail, because I just do not want to be in a position where I'm hurting, uh, you know, the people I love, family and friends, and and uh, anymore. I- I'm very grateful in that they're still there for me, but uh, my history is objectively worrisome. And I was mm-hmm. just looking for something different. Mm-hmm. Well, you you definitely got different. Um, tell us, walk us through that that first four gram dose that you took. Well, I had you know I had expected um, hallucinations, visual things, insights. What I got was anger and rage and loathing directed. <laughs> at some significant people in my early childhood, directed really against the whole of humanity and most importantly, directed at myself. As it turned out, one of the therapists who was here at um, here, here this week um, happened to be near me and helped me move my chair um, after this had started. And my anger and loathing was so palpable to her that she almost, she picked up some of it, but knew it wasn't hers. <laughs> and I just sat there and fumed and then started to walk around and look at everybody, you know, I'm still stone cold sober. I don't feel any better. And I was royally pissed. But by that evening, <laughs> that sounds funny now. Go ahead and laugh. I was laughing then too. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't as funny then. But uh, by that evening, I was starting to feel some forgiveness and some understanding that a lot of these people had done the best that they could. That includes me. Mm-hmm. You know, with, with the hand I got dealt, I had mm-hmm. done the best that I could. Yes. Was it great? <laughs> no. But I, I'm not an evil guy. I'm not a bad guy. There was no malice involved. Mm-hmm. I'm not some, mm-hmm. you know, Nazi stormtrooper trying to disrupt people's lives. Uh, I was trying to ease my own pain. And unfortunately, the methods I choose to do chose to do that were very destructive to people I cared about. Professional associations, uh, prof- I mean, people I associated with professionally, family members. Mm-hmm. So first. when, at what point did the anger start to turn on that first one? Not until that evening. Several things had happened that I was not able to uh, approach before. I-, I had been encouraged to journal by various mental health professionals in my past. That evening, I felt absolutely compelled to do that, whereas I had never done it before. And I think I wrote for three hours, I think between 1 and 4 a.m. And it was there that I started to uh, started to feel different. Mm. And, and um, that's really not what I expected. I did not expect all that trauma to come out. If anybody thinks that is what a recreational drug does, I got some news for you. That was not my idea of a good time. You know, it uh, anything but. However, as we may have time to get into subsequently, it was what I needed at the time. And since I was willing to be open to the experience, what happened is what happened. 
and it turned out to be what I needed, though not necessarily what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've articulated this whole experience so well this week. Um, so after this dose, we have our integration meeting, and there's more processing that continues through the day. Uh, and then we, the next day, wake up, have a meeting, follow up with another dose, uh, back at it again. And that time, you had asked me to to hit you with the, the hammer, that thick skull of yours you so frequently have reminded us of. Um, and so you took a 10-gram dose that day. Uh, and based on your response to the four gram that just aggravation, you know, like I, I had told you that I kind of expected that maybe, uh, but I didn't, you, you have just been such a wonderful surprise all week. I just never expected that you would transition, transition so quickly into the forgiveness. And as I said, you helped others this week by doing that. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, and so then what was the, what was the payoff? What was the experience and payoff of 10 grams? <laughs> well, I remember one of the things that I wrote in my journal was, and one of the things that I was angry about, and I wrote this down, will somebody, anybody do anything to get through this four foot thick uranium <laughs> skull? I mean, as some of you may know, uranium is, spent uranium is an extremely dense material and is used <laughs> to shield stuff. And I had been shielding myself for so long. So I needed, I knew I needed something that would, get through my ego. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking back on, on things that I've read in the, uh, in the Hopkins studies on uh, the preliminary studies on, on, on major depressive disorder, the experience of, um, of an ego loss mm-hmm. and, uh, a mystical experience. I don't know how you define that, mm. but I'll tell you how, how it happened for me. It seems to be one of the necessary ingredients for a good therapeutic result. You know, that's, that's what's, a, that's what's there in the original, um, in the, in the early literature. Well, what happened to me is I took that dose and I laid down in this pretty comfortable recliner. And somewhat soon after that, though my sense of time was very distorted, I really couldn't tell you how long it was, I decided I needed to be covered up and enveloped. Now, remember, this is June, or we're in Jamaica. (laughs) So what do I do? I cover myself with a blanket. And it's getting really warm in there. And then for a period of time, I was not aware of my existence. I had that that ego loss. Soon after that, and again, this was not my intention for this experience. Very soon after that, uh, I started to be a little bit annoyed, thinking that it wasn't time for me to be born yet. Um, and sometime after that, I started to feel birth contractions. I knew in some way, ineffable as it is, that I was back in the birth canal. I kind of got worried because I couldn't breathe very well. And then I realized I had an umbilical cord, so I'm fine. And then a little bit after that, you know, my head came out and and I saw this huge white light. Um, Remember, I was still covered with a blanket. Mm -hmm. I had blinders on Mm -hmm. and a hat over my head. Mm -hmm. So the white light was not in the reality that I was experiencing. I I was redoing this. Um, and subsequently, when I journaled, this man I, I said that would, would be my choice to 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 do this with Stefan Groff described that rebirth experience as being very important therapeutically for mm-hmm. his patients. Mm-hmm. This was not my intent. 
That was not where I wanted to go. After that, I got some help and I was brought to, uh, not my room because my room is upstairs. Um, one of the other uh, conference attendees had a room downstairs in this particular uh, building and he graciously let me lay there. And I had a period of what seemed like millions of years of just emotional catharsis and joy. And I, and I felt enormous forgiveness towards, uh, people who had, you know, put me in a difficult position. I, I had a, um, second degree relative grandmother who was paranoid schizophrenic and an alcoholic father and, uh, at least emotionally incestuous mother and, um, had issues dealing from that. And when that settled down, I also had to deal with a malignancy at age 20 when I was just starting to get myself together. And it was just a very, very painful beginning to my life. And it was really about that time that I started to uh, drink alcoholically. Uh, and that was the first substance that I used addictively. And then since then, it's been a pattern of periods of sobriety and recurrence, periods of depression and improvement and recurrence, but never, never a sense of resolution. I journaled again that day and, and wrote down that experience of forgiveness, which was, I, I can't describe it. I knew that these people I had forgiven were okay and that I was somehow okay. And I got the strong feeling that there's no reason for me to use anything addictively again. There's no reason for me to be depressed and anxious. Now, I will say the next day, I felt like my head had been through a ringer washer. And um, I was kind of discombobulated. And of course, that kind of makes sense. I had a pretty intense emotional workout. And um, I was reluctant in, in, in taking the third dose. But by the time it came up, it, um, by the time that came up, uh, I, I had recovered somewhat. And even though I was initially reluctant, that also turned turned out to be extremely important. One thing I had not done uh, on uh, the second dose is one of my regrets that I wasn't aware of is I wasn't able to cry at either of my parents' funerals. And I went to my parents' funerals this time, and I, I did cry. And uh, that feeling of inadequacy in myself of not even being able to cry at your parents' funerals left. And... Um, that again reinforced the the forgiveness that was there. Mm. <sighs> it's kind of emotionally exhausting just talking about mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you really have worked very hard this week. Um, and I think that if you do find yourself in a tough place, then this will be online for you to come back to. And I think that hearing yourself talk about this can be very, very valuable. I, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to do this. I also, uh, I think I'm going to continue with the journaling. Mm -hmm. The, um, you know, writing this down and even looking at it again and then filling in details that weren't there mm -hmm. can be very valuable to me at some time in the future, whether it's next week or next year, mm -hmm. because I can look back and, and realize some of the things that I had learned because things tend to fade with time. Yes. I'd never journaled before. The, the experiences I had as a child, I'm, I'm going to mention a couple of things that were transformative for me. Most normal people like massages. Mm. I had one in the 1980s, and 
the feeling of a non-sexual touch was almost intolerable. And I think it had to do with uh, certain ways my mother used to rub my arm when she'd tell me she'd rather be married to me than my father. Uh, I'm not certain about that, but that's kind of where I was led to um, during these experiences. Mm -hmm. Not only did I have the massage, but I thoroughly enjoyed it to the point where I arranged another one two days later. Now, that may not sound a big deal for for most of you out there, but if you ask any family member of mine, their mouths will be, you know, hanging mm. wide open. I literally told them for years that I would pay somebody the charge, the price of the massage not to have it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I was able to, to get past that. I wonder if you were to take massages in the states if it might bring you back to this a little bit in a way you know i've thought about that i was thinking of my wife likes massages so maybe we'll make a couple's appointment and we'll go get ourselves mm -hmm. a massage mm -hmm. i'm actually looking forward to it it's something she's invited me to do in the past and i just you know wouldn't go there and it did remind me that i was now safe and it was okay mm. it was very comfortable very comfortable to have that experience um, yeah, you you have you have valued the small, like the small steps, and that's why I think you've had so many bigger openings as time has gone on. You know, you really you really learned well uh, that first experience. You know, you did fight it a little bit, like you said, but it, you, you very quickly sat with it and observed it, um, and that allowed it to transform. And you've just done that all week long. You've contributed so much to the conversations and just the progress of the group overall. You know, it's, it's, it is so obvious to me and I get so joyful when I see people start to get moving quick because I know that it's going to help accelerate the rest of the group in their healing process. Yeah. So thank you again. Um, so how, how is your view of psilocybin different now than going into it? Well, again, you know, my only experience, as I mentioned, with anything similar was uh, LSD in a much smaller comparable dose. And that basically was taken as a recreational drug, but did, did produce the resolution of a couple of things, such as a, a fear of dogs and a recurrent nightmare I had from a, um, from an experience, um, when I was sent to preschool in the fourth grade and I spoke no language that they spoke in the preschool. My my um, parents spoke the language of our national origin at home, and uh, oh, that was not the language of the nation. And I was sent to a preschool, and I was babbling away in that language, and nobody understood it whatsoever. And I had recurrent nightmares. Hmm. And uh, that even that relatively small-dose LSD experience resolved that. Coming here... Um, it, it, in a lot of ways, it was not what I expected. You know, often people will describe visuals and hallucinations and this sort of thing. There was really none of that for me. Most of this experience was cathartic emotional processing. I guess the main thing that could be called hallucinatory, if you will, though I don't believe that's what it was, was that, that birth experience. You know, mm -hmm. I was born again mm -hmm. and kind of went through that period of my life looking at everybody, 
forgiving everybody, forgiving myself, and was very cathartic. Um, some of the other participants described <clears throat> things that definitely were hallucinations, you know, green stuff coming out of their skin. I didn't get anything like that, but I got what I needed. I didn't come here to entertain myself. I, I didn't come for fun. And uh, I believe that psilocybin and other similar compounds are very potent not only psychiatric, but spiritual and emotional medications. Coming from a medical background, it's, it's, it's hard. It's a bit hard for me to figure out how, how that's going to fit into a medical model, though any legalization will have to fit into a medical model. This is a not a simple thing to measure. We'll have to have a way to measure outcomes, but the process is not I think the process leads to the outcome, and the process is key, and I've described some of my process, which I'm hoping will lead to the outcome I want. But to, to sit here and describe this to somebody who's never experienced it almost sounds like I'm nuts. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't pass through your mother's birth canal a second time, mm-hmm. yet the experience was so ineffably real. See, there you go. There's the word, ineffable. If you look at the descriptions of psychedelic experiences over the years, that comes up. In other words, there are not enough that the words in, in do not exist in any human language to convey what it's like adequately. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly don't have them, and I'm, I've noticed that really nobody has them. It's very hard to describe. And I think that is the key component of the of the mystical experience that there is an element to it that cannot be put into words. I would agree completely. And so, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about that, the future of psychedelic therapy and, you know, the medicalization of this uh, as it seems to be occurring right now. What are your some of your predictions for that? And what would you also like to see in that? I'm going to be honest with you. I'm concerned because, um, in my opinion, there's really an unholy alliance of the FDA, drug companies, um, and the federal government. Let me give you a recent example. One of the medications I had used to get me through those episodes of depression earlier in the year was ketamine, mm-hmm. which is an anesthetic drug that's being used off-label um, for depression and has some good short-term results and can be used legally. And I had some infusions of that, and it got me through a period of time where I was approaching suicidality, and that's not where I wanted to be. Now, <clears throat> while I was going through that, or just before I was going through that, the FDA had approved uh, a patented medicine called Spravato. Now, what Spravato is, is esketamine. A little bit of biochemistry in the background here, organic chemistry. A lot of organic or a lot of complex molecules exist as mirror image of each, mirror images of each other, called enantiomers R and S. If if you took the two molecules, they would look they would be mirror images. All all that spravato esketamine is is um, the S isomer of ketamine, and that was able to be patented. And it's being used in a way that's a very medically inaccurate way to dose a medication. 
basically it's a nasal spray. Now, think about it. If you blow something up your nose, some people will let it sit there and absorb some of it. Other people will swallow it. And why does that matter? Ketamine is metabolized by the liver. If you swallow most of it, the effective dose is very Mm -hmm. small. Mm -hmm. So you're getting an unpredictable dose over an unpredictable period of time. Uh, And the pricing of it, as it's turned out, has been substantially more than the price of the racemic ketamine infusions. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the, this is an example of that unholy alliance. So that will be paid for by insurance companies, whereas the cheap effective one, because it's, nobody is interested in, 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 in bringing it through the trials needed for FDA approval for depression. The cheap expense, I mean, the cheap ketamine will not be approved as a treatment for depression, will be off label, and therefore will not be covered by insurance companies. Now, my concern for this medication currently um, is, again, it has to fit into a medical model. Well, what are they using in the medical trials, using synthetic psilocybin? And to some extent, I get that. I mean, when you synthesize something, you know there's X number of milligrams of psilocybin in this capsule. Psilocybin originates from an organ- from a, um, basically an agricultural product. It's a mm-hmm. mushroom. All agricultural, all natural products are going to have variability. Mm-hmm. You know, there's going to be some variability in the psilocybin content. You can, you can try to make that as consistent as possible by using, you know, uh, consistent, um, methods of cultivation. That's way above my head, but there, there is going to be variability. So what I am concerned about is that the pathway that will be followed will be very similar to what happened with ketamine. And, this is in in fact starting to happen the the um <clears throat> the fda permission for the depression study has been given to compass labs in england that's a for-profit organization and they're working on patenting a method to synthesize psilocybin so what may happen is that you'll have the synthetic substance legalized it'll be stupid expensive whereas the natural substance um, will still be illegal. Probably once the synthetic substance is legalized, the ramifications of being found with the natural substance may drop off, but certainly any treatment protocol using the natural substance will not be paid for. And I must emphasize that this is something that needs to be done with people. You need to have people with you mm-hmm. because the doses that are required to get breakthroughs like I had is not something that should be undertaken by yourself. Um, and that is extremely variable as well. Also extremely so variable. So as we standardize the content of psilocybin in a manufactured pill, I wonder how we're going to address that need for variance. Well, that'll have to be paid for. Uh, you, you know, so harder heads like yours have to pay more for a dose because they got to take <laughs> three capsules. I don't know how the I don't know the pricing model will be. Sometimes drug companies price it by the dose. Sometimes it almost doesn't matter what you're giving; they just give you the amount. Mm. But also, the, in a medical model, what will need to be co- covered is people to sit there with mm-hmm. you to mm-hmm. to make it safe, mm-hmm. and that'll probably have to be somebody with some professional credential. Currently in the research being done, they're therapists, mental health counselors, mm-hmm. 
You know, somebody's got to pay for their time. Right. This thing takes five, six hours. Gee, so Otis had eight or nine, brother. Well, okay. <laughs> I was talking right. about at a minimum. Yeah. So, you know, if Joe Blow Citizen were to, were to go in and get his treatment for depression, not only would the payment model have to include the medicine, it would have to include the other things needed, mm-hmm. a, a place to be safely watched, sitters, probably required regulatory Things would include uh, an ability to treat any adverse reaction medically mm-hmm. if needed with something to, to suppress the experience, whatever. Mm-hmm. How, oh. However, that's done. And all that is expensive. And it's already sounding like just the antithesis of psilocybin. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. What my experience is, is this is a very spiritual medicine. I'm going to come up with a theory. This is going to really sound nuts. But I really believe that God put this stuff in there for a benefit. If you look at the types of mushrooms that produce this, the, the way psilocybin is synthesized not only by psilocybes, but, but some other things. This mm-hmm. is not an area of you know, cicadas. There, they have found cicadas that have a fungus and, uh, anthropopathogenic fungus that will consume the cicada, produce psilocybin, and be as the cicadas dying but still flying, it's spreading spores. <laughs> so there's psilocybin and lichens have been found in, in the Amazon. Right. Yeah. I I do. The, the language, I think I, I get a little choppy on with, with God, but uh, n- existence, nature, this this mystery, the mystical experience, the, the ineffable, it does – these things are here for a reason, and we synthesize them from nature. Uh, so, you know, like nature gets all credit in my book. Right. And there's where it's, there's where it's going to have difficulty fitting into the medical yeah. model. And I, you know, I've thought a little bit about it. That's not my focus this week, but I've run around my head a bit. And quite frankly, at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I really see an answer. Yeah. I don't either, honestly. Um, I think it's, it's still just on such a razor's edge. So, well, we will we will see. And right now, while we can, let's just keep you know here anyway in Jamaica, uh, keep benefiting from it and and spreading spreading that benefit to others. Uh, I'm very happy to have seen you get what you have out of this exper- experience. It's just been really wonderful working with you through the week. Thanks. It's been good to be here. I do want to mention one thing. You know, what are my goals? Will I ever? Will I, do I ever feel I will need to take psilocybin again? Quite frankly, I don't know. My goal is never recreational. I do not ever want to place my family in a position where there are legal risks involved. That's why I like this mm-hmm. setting. This is the one nation where there are no legal ramifications, and, and, and that's important. If I should need it again, I'd be more than willing to take it again. It's also possible that I may never need it again. And mm-hmm. you know, quite mm-hmm. frankly, one of the things I learned this week is I do not need to know the answer uh, right now. You know, freedom. all I need to do is do the next non-toxic thing in front of me, and I do not have to control the outcome for everything. The mm-hmm. seeding of control has been very mm-hmm. liberating. See, I, usually I freak out before I have to travel somewhere. You know, I'm going to put my things in my suitcase and I'll show up there. And is it possible that the plane will be delayed? Oh, sure. You know what? It's not the end of the world. Mm. It's not that big a deal. I can't control it. Isn't it interesting that you as a libertarian uh, (laughs) (laughs) learning to cede control? (laughs) Well, you know, 
<laughs> we don't usually talk politics here, folks, but it's come up a couple of times this week. All in goodness. You know, libertarians, I think we are, we provide the best of both sides. We're extremely fiscally conservative and extremely socially liberal. I do not want to restrict other people's rights, mm-hmm. but I want them basically out of my pocket because uh, they can only get in my pocket if I should choose to let them in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, it's this is an example of overarchingly powerful government. That Controlled Substances Act of 1970 really robbed yes. a generation of people, uh, you know, suffering from— Yes, and it's still robbing. It's I mean, we still don't know, robbing. We don't know when this is going to be up. The World Health Organization lists major depression as one of the major, if not one of the major, if not the major cause of morbidity and mortality. And um, to medicalize this again, if development had been allowed to continue to continue as was going on in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and as we were discussing earlier, even way back to the 1920s with mescaline, Mm -hmm. uh, who knows where we'd be today? But everything was shut off with one letter. In uh, 1970, I read about that. One of the researchers who was uh, working on it at the time, James Fadham, and got the letter, and, and it was shut down. And now we're undergoing a bit of a renaissance. But guess what, folks? This is f- almost 50 years later. This is 2019. That's a half a freaking century. Mm-hmm. In 1970, I was a kid. Could I have been spared a lot of what I got through? I don't know. Certainly possible. We'll never know. But you know what else? I don't have any resentment towards them either. <laughs> it's yeah. so liberating. Yeah. It's so yeah. liberating. Yeah. I, I, they were doing the best they could at the time, mm-hmm. and I could not control that then. And you know, I'm I'm an AA member, and resentment, as we say, is the number one offender. And 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 letting go of that any bitterness and anger is very therapeutic for me and not only did this experience enable me to do that with my family it's it sort of seems to be extending into other areas gradually i expect that i will learn more over the next few weeks uh, maybe even months i don't think the full effect of this occurs during the session with the medicine itself. Mm-hmm. I think the effects are, are much more protracted, and I, my job is to stay open to whatever I'm going to learn. Perfect. Yes, your assessment is correct, and I have a very strong feeling that you are going to receive many more blessings. Uh, yeah, more healing. <laughs> so, what what would your billboard be? If you're going to put up a billboard across this great nation promoting psilocybin, how would you do that, sir? Oh my gosh, how would I do that? Let me think for a sec. Hmm? I don't know if you could fit this on a, on a billboard, but I try to let people know that if anybody's had to live with the consequences of a um, alcoholic or addicted family member who they know is basically a good person but repeatedly gets into these difficulties or with somebody who's been debilitated by a mood disorder, just that there's a medicine available that if if well-developed can really help these people you care about. You know, these people are not looking for entertainment. They're not looking for a fun high. And don't get me wrong, I'm sure there are some people who are doing that, but that is certainly not the reason I'm here. 
Uh, and I can definitely say, even though this week was very valuable, it was certainly no fun. It was not my idea of a vacation. My head's been through a ringer washer and I'm mentally exhausted. Are you kidding me? And I paid for it. My gosh. But it was very valuable. And, and, and that this is, despite its reputation, a medicine that can really help people that you care about, that you love and that love you. Mm. Now, how do you put that concisely on a billboard? I don't know, but there's some ad agency guy who can figure it out. I'm going to say psilocybin kicks asses and saves lives. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Yes. It certainly does that. Uh, Well, I do believe saving lives is is true. Um, I don't know if it's saved your life, but it has certainly helped you. And I do suspect you will continue to see benefit, and I hope to continue to hear about your progress as you carry on i will keep you posted and if i ever need this treatment again i'll come back if i don't feel i do i may not but i'm very supportive of it mm-hmm. um, and every everybody's needs are different yes you know it may turn out in the future that some people can be enormously helped by a single short course of treatment maybe other and this is true in all sorts of medical absolutely other we people just don't know we don't types know and yeah. yeah the requirements and, and that's one of the problems with us being so far behind we lost we lost half a century mm-hmm. literally we've mm-hmm. lost half a century the answers to these questions are not known mm-hmm. um hopefully within my lifetime and uh, really hopefully within my kids lifetime some of those answers will be there maybe we'll even know which groups of people would benefit with different right types of, of, of approaches of administration oh, we don't know oh, god there's so many questions so many questions and i just hope that we can contribute to it so well thank you again for joining us here on retreat and on the psilocybin chronicles it has been a pleasure likewise eric thank you for everything all right psilocybin kicking ass and saving lives yeah yeah i know that's my version of what our illustrious guest presented as a billboard but we are going for concise here and god love my guest his billboard was not that and that's okay we're all figuring it out together folks psilocybin has certainly put me through the ringer and it has absolutely saved my life our esteemed guest mentioned dosing alongside stanislav groff i believe he said stefan groff but i actually meant stan i've heard this confusion before stanislav is truly a leader in the field of psychedelics He has administered thousands of doses of LSD and has a breadth of knowledge beyond most, if not everyone, on the planet regarding LSD. Let's hear what he has to say about psychedelic therapy, shall we? So, talk about that. In an ideal world, if you were writing the laws and uh, designing therapeutic uh, approaches using LSD, and we'll also talk later about holotropic breathwork, um, how would you see... uh, therapy using those tools being practiced and what outcomes would you see from it? Well, you're talking about uh, the experience of the donut, okay, which means that uh, you did it with your eyes open, and at least when this happened yeah. with the donut. Uh, so, so it's very interesting, interesting for artists, you know, the changes of the environment. Uh, I have uh, I have in my uh, this new book, Understanding the Modern Consciousness Recession, Understanding of Art, some examples how it can change your perception of the external world. But there you get the mixture of what you see out there and then what you are projecting. The real journey starts when you keep your eyes closed. Mm-hmm. 
In other words, we, when we do it therapeutically, you do it with eye shades, you do it with headphones, with music, and then you just get messages, just pure messages from your unconscious. And then it becomes an you know, extremely important investigative tool. Uh, I compared it in my early writings to a microscope, to telescope. I mean, you can study certain processes which you cannot study unless uh, you would work with people where the unconscious opens up spontaneously. But psychiatrists don't do it. We put people on tranquilizers rather than studying what's coming out of these spontaneous episodes. Mm -hmm. So so anyway, so we had like a telescope or a, or a microscope. And uh, so I, I uh, initially started, uh, I think for about two years, we were doing laboratory studies. What happens, you know, in the body? We would bother people, you know, in these uh, LSD sessions, drawing samples of blood and having them pee every uh, hour and, you know, psychological tests and so on. And we were doing it to ourselves as well. And those are very different kind of experiences. But uh, then I noticed something really amazing, which was incredible inter-individual and intra-individual variability. So if um, this 50 people take LSD with the same dosage under the same circumstances, everybody would have completely different session. And if you take it repeatedly, each session will be different. And I realized at that point, we were not doing pharmacology. We would not have pharmacology if substances would uh, respond like LSD. If you, you have to know somehow what you want to achieve. You want to have people to throw up, you give them apomorphine and a significant number of them have to throw up as a result of it. Or, or sleeping pills, you know. So you, you have to have some sense what's going to happen. With LSD you had no idea what's going to happen. Anything could happen but nothing had to happen. And at that point I realized we were studying the psyche. We were studying the psyche with a powerful catalyst. And at that point I took it to back to the clinical work and sort of doing we, we could give a whole series of sessions, usually medium dosages. Uh, one of my clients called this, uh, we were doing onion peeling of the psyche, going layer after layer. And so you could get a sense of what is the content of the different layers, how things are interconnected, how uh, the unconscious content relates to symptoms, at which point you start moving the symptoms. They intensify or they, they uh, disappear and so on. And uh, I br brought uh, into this work my medical study and my psychoanalysis. And uh, according to Freud, uh, the newborn is a tabula rasa. There's not supposed to be anything <laughs> that precedes birth. The psychological history starts after you're born. And that proved to be a very poor tool for this kind of work because nobody that I worked with would stay in that playground uh, defined by Freudian analysis. And people started moving into really scary areas, feeling, you know, they are trapped and they were dying and going crazy. They will never come back. And then uh, getting the insights that uh, the only logical explanation is they must have been back to their biological birth. So I had this tremendous challenge to accept the fact that there is there is a record of birth because according to my teachers, you know, this couldn't, couldn't be the case because the, the uh, uh, brain of the newborn was not supposed to be mature enough. It was not what's called myelinized. 
And so this, this meant to, you know, uh, do observations that were in serious conflict with what these authorities were saying. And if you are a medical student or a sort of fresh baking, um, psychiatrist, you have a lot of respect to authority, that people sort of, you know, have written books and so on. So I would start questioning my, my sanity and all, you know, my observations and, took quite a while, including my own experiences, where I said, no, it's there. I mean, it's, it's up to the f neurophysiologist to find where it's recorded. It's, there is a very uh, highly organized uh, organ, the brain of the newborn. So maybe it's in the subcortex. Maybe it's in the spinal cord. Maybe it's in every cell of the body. Because, because we knew also from biology, there's something like protoplasmatic memory and so on. Uh, and so I sort of became comfortable with this and, you know, able to, and people say, oh, I'm dying. I say, let yourself die. You know, this is not real dying. This is going to be it's part of a rebirth process. Let's go, you know, let's do it. And I was, I was doing this myself as I was working. But then just as I got sort of comfortable with birth, then it started going beyond that. And I started seeing past lives and we started seeing arch archetypal uh, experiences, you know, people going into collective unconscious and so on. And uh, so I realized, okay, I have this new tool, and if you have a new tool, uh, it opens up new areas of studies. I'm going to map this. So I started mapping uh, where people were going. It took about three years to get together uh, this extended cartography where I felt comfortable that at least, not specifically, but each major category of experiences was on that map. Thank you, Stan. Uh, listeners, while Stan is a genius, absolutely, <laughs> he's not quite an entertainer, which I must say that I find ironic considering that his drug of choice, LSD, is, in my opinion, one of the most entertaining experiences on the planet. It fascinates me to no end thinking about individuals like this gentleman who had first glimpses into the impact that psychedelics had, and then to be able to categorize the variety of experiences. Wow, these people really led the way. We stand on the shoulders of giants. Stan said in regards to LSD, the same person can take the same dose in the same setting multiple times, and every time that person will have a different experience. This is true for psilocybin as well. It is one of the most impressive aspects of this medicine, but also one of the greatest concerns as a facilitator. You never know what is going to come out. And my guest on this episode certainly found that out. <laughs> now, Graf touched on some very important stuff, which relates to the psilocybin experience. There's a lot of crossover there. The death and rebirth past lives, archetypal experiences, and more. His work mapping these states is extremely valuable and should be further considered for psilocybin as well. Because while there is much crossover, as I mentioned, mushrooms are significantly different from LSD. And I don't know that they've really been given the same attention by academia. LSD is a much, much easier vehicle to drive, and... It seems to have a different kind of mystical quality to it. Now, I admit, I have relatively little experience with LSD, having only about 20 trips under my belt over the last 20 years, 
and never more than 200 mics, so I do consider myself a novice. I have this hope or dream, I don't know, that I will eventually retire into LSD, that when I'm 70 years old, I will be able to eat as much acid as I want, whenever I want. I mean, I do love this stuff, folks. You can get W-E-I-R-D on LSD, and it feels perfectly normal, (laughs) which, while many of you may consider me uh, a little outside the bounds of normal, I still have my reservations as well. And mushrooms do get weird, but in a way that can be downright spooky, like I gotta get the fuck out of here kind of weird. Sometimes. (laughs) LSD, for me anyway, is an easy to manage weird, like, yeah, it's weird, maybe a little spooky, but I got this (laughs) kind of way. A seasoned psychonaut can plan, coordinate, and execute a moderately structured adventure with LSD, with mushrooms, for all but the most experienced psychedelic explorer. Anything more than a mid-range dose, and you're going to have to (laughs) work at things like tying your shoes or using a phone. And any kind of coordinated outing is likely to end in confusion rather than completion. Now, please don't take this as an endorsement for public LSD consumption. As with psilocybin, I believe it is best used in a safe and controlled setting. I'm just saying it's easier to manage and more predictably a good time. Anyway, you can tell that my experience with LSD is not necessarily in a therapeutic setting. (laughs) uh, Unless you consider having one of the funnest days of your life therapy. (laughs) Uh, You know, while our work at Myco... Uh, is certainly focused uh, and intentional and in a very stable setting, I do not discourage people from having fun with their mushrooms. Everybody tends to get what they need, and there's a real beauty in just letting the process unfold. Uh, But (laughs) seems like we tend to poo-poo on the uh, potential good time to be had with these medicines. Laughter, after all, (laughs) is the best medicine, right? So, anyway, thank you as always for joining me on the Psilocybin Chronicles. May all of your journeys, both inward and outward, on LSD or psilocybin, be safe and rewarding.